0: everyone, Calvin Mofield here, and welcome back to Calvin the Author's Audiobooks for Episode 6. As always, thank you for coming back to hear me tell you another piece of the story. My books are still on Kindle Unlimited, but I'm taking a look at Scribble as a possible new place to add my written works as well as the audiobook. I'm finally finished with Broken Realms Finding Home Tale 5, so I've started the editing process and hope to have it up in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to start looking for covers this week, and if I can find at least three covers that I like, I'll put up a blog post on the site so everyone can vote on them and help me pick the best cover. This podcast contains adult language, situations, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. On the last episode, Max spent the day trying to learn more about what had happened to Steph. After going to eat at one of his favorite greasy spoons, Max learned that the soup kitchen where Steph was working was under new management. A corporation by the name of Biotech had bought the soup kitchen as a PR move a few months back. With this new knowledge, Max heads over to the soup kitchen and finds a man working in the kitchen who tells Max what happened that night, as well as describes the vehicle that Steph was taken away in. And that's where we pick up the story in this episode. Chapter 4 I knew of three custom audio shops locally that could pull off the type of system Mr. Stewart had described to me. I had to bend the truth about my still being employed with the city, but desperate times called for desperate measures, and besides that, it had paid off. One of the shops remembered doing a custom light and sound job on a dark-colored Explorer about a month ago. He wouldn't have remembered the guy at all if the guy who had owned the vehicle hadn't been such a jerk, telling him and his fellow car stereo that, he was an important man, and if they messed things up, they'd be sorry, and the law couldn't save them. It didn't bother the guy at all to give up the owner of the explorer's name and address. Thank God, Arthur Stellingman is an asshole, or I might have never found him. I enter the address into my phone's GPS and note that it's in the worst part of town, on the south side, which made sense, being that the guys I'm looking for were dealing drugs. Like most cities, the worst part is usually the oldest, and the south side was no exception. Located down around the river, the first businesses and industries were built there. Housing followed the money, and the south side was born. As time wore on, people ventured further and further away from the south side, and it fell out of memory and into ruin. Soon after, those who preyed on the desolate and desperate moved in and took over. Now it's not a safe place to venture into the dark if you're a certain type of person. It was late evening by the time I drive past the house belonging to the address I was given. Sure enough, There was a black Ford Explorer next to a dirty two-story with a cracked brick front porch. From the run-down look, you'd never know there was a drug dealer living and working inside. Making a mental note of its location, I head down two blocks and hang a right. I find a suitable parking spot for the Cutlass about four blocks down and lock it just so I can tell the insurance that I did in case someone breaks into it or steals it. I open the trunk and start grabbing things I might need. Grabbing a backpack off the right-hand side, I start going through its contents. I pull out a flashlight, taser, ball cap, extra shirt, and a lighter. Satisfied that everything is there. Then I reach inside, underneath the back dash, and pull out my all-black FN-57 handgun. Sliding it out of its holster, I check it over to make sure there are no obvious dings or water damage. Then I slide it back in its holster and clip it to my waistband before I slide my hoodie over the top of it. Just because they decided I wasn't a cop anymore didn't mean I stopped preparing like one. I check to make sure no one's watching me. Then I close the trunk and start heading back towards the dealer's house. Pulling the hood up on my sweater, I make a note of the setting sun. At least with it getting dark, it would be easier to find a spot to stake out the house without being noticed. I pick up a limp on my way and slouch my shoulders to add to the effect. At six, eight, and built like a pro wrestler, it wasn't easy to make myself look unnoticeable. It takes me a few minutes with a limp, but I finally reach the street the house is on and start to walk toward it. Using the hood of my sweater to hide my eyes, I try to take in as much as I can about the house and its neighbors. I also notice a very large black man in a bull starter jacket standing on the porch watching from the shadows. I focus on the limp and mutter to myself, shaking my head as if I were arguing with someone who wasn't there, and keep walking. I make it to the end of the block and I take a left, making sure I've walked well past the black gentleman's field of view before dropping the act and Jogging down an alley on the opposite side of the street and coming up beside the abandoned house that hid me in its shadow and let me watch Mr. Stillman's place of business. The hours tick by and it doesn't take me long to notice a pattern. From time to time, a car or truck will honk twice. In short bursts, and the man on the porch will walk out to the vehicle. He reaches in, shakes hands with the driver, and gives him a bro hug before he walks back to the porch, putting his hands back in his pockets as he goes. This happens several times throughout the night. From the looks of it, I couldn't see any money or drugs trading hands. I did notice him giving them a small folded piece of paper, most likely a pickup time, and a spot for pushers to get the product. That was smart. If they were ever busted, they wouldn't have any drugs on them, and the cops couldn't hold them unless they had other warrants. I guess I had to strike stupid criminals off my wish list. Standing there for hours, after draining that large sweet tea, was making my bladder scream for mercy. Not being able to keep warm wasn't helping anything either. I was beginning to think that the man on the porch was a robot sent from the future because in four hours, the man hadn't left his post to go inside to handle his business once. It didn't look like he was going to give me the opportunity I needed to get in that house. Jogging back behind the house, I take care of my bladder first. Then I follow the alley behind the house to the end of the block and make my way up behind the dealer's house. I knew from staking out the place that no one had entered or left the house. So that meant that there were no less and no more in there than there was before. The only problem with that is that I didn't know how many that was, and there was only one way to find out. Taking the alley that runs behind the dealer's house, I count the houses until I find the right one. The back of the house is protected by a six-foot dog-ear privacy fence. Being well over six feet myself, that wasn't really so much of a problem as just a pain in my arse. I put both arms in the straps on the backpack, make sure they're tight, then hop on the fence. Allowing the top to rest at my waist, then using my momentum to finish swinging my legs over the top and landing fairly quietly on the ground. I look around and take note of the dry rotting back deck with grill and patio set, the three back windows in the back of the house as well as the yard barn, and a pit bull. Wait. I freeze exactly where I am and watch the once sleeping dog stir and stand up on all four legs. It stares at me, sniffing the air as it starts to growl, if he barked. Things were going to get real interesting real fast. I kicked myself mentally for not looking over the fence first to get a lay of the land before jumping it. I really was getting out of practice. I wasn't one to hurt animals. and In fact, as a cop, I would be harder on those I knew had been cruel to their pests just out of principle. But Steph was worth bending a few moral codes for to get her back. I readied myself to grab and hit the dog in what I hoped would be a strike that would knock it unconscious. My stomach twisted with the guilt because I knew this animal was only doing what it was trained to do, protect its home and its master. I just couldn't take the chance. I load my legs and torso like a spring under pressure, preparing for a swift, decisive strike when I hear something strange. Nothing. The buzz of traffic from the nearby highway was gone. No screaming drunk couples, no dogs barking. It was all gone, like I was stuck in a vacuum. Then I hear the sound of whipping clothes in the wind. It's the quick, crisp pop of cloth flung back and forth by the wind running through it, and for some reason it chills me to the bone. I look over at the pit bull, who is now hiding in his doghouse, and I know my gut is right. I just got removed as number one on the food chain in this backyard. I searched the background for whatever was making the noise. Things looked the same, perhaps a little creepier without any sound, but I couldn't see anyone or anything new that wasn't there before. I held my place, breathing shallowly, trying to stay ready in case I needed to react quickly. Every nerve ending was screaming, telling me I was in danger, even though I couldn't see it with my own eyes. I knew there was something amiss, something unnatural. Time ticks by and nothing happens. I know I can't stand here forever. If someone was going to attack me, it would have happened by now. For all intents and purposes, I was standing in plain view in the middle of the yard, so... I wouldn't have been missed if they were back there with me. For all intents and purposes, I was standing in plain view in the middle of the yard, so I wouldn't have been missed if they were back here with me. Nerves fading, training and common sense take over, and I force my muscles to move my stiffened body between the yard barn and the privacy fence. Once there, I make my way to the far end and peek out from behind it, still looking for whatever that sound had belonged to. Still nothing. Had I imagined the whole thing? I hated that I have to constantly ask myself whether or not I existed in reality or one of my visions. Habitually, I remove the flask from my back pocket and take two long hits from the spout before capping it up and putting it away. I feel the burn of the bourbon as it slides down my throat and hits my stomach. Soon after, I feel the heat coursing through my veins and my nerves calm down, and I can focus. I close my eyes and take it all in. I knew I had to get in that house if I was ever going to find out if they were holding stuff here. I knew that if I did so, it would probably mean a shootout and people were bound to get hurt. Some of them might be innocent, though I highly doubted it. I steeled my resolve for what had to be done against the what-ifs that lay inside and headed for the corner window. I crouched against the wall, just outside the view of the window, and chanced a couple of quick glances inside. It appeared to be a bedroom, from the bed, dressers, and clothes thrown about. It looked like the coast was clear but I could see the door leading out into the rest of the house, and who knew when that would fly open, revealing me to everyone inside. Quietly, I slide in front of the window and lightly tug up on the bottom window, hoping that whoever used this room didn't lock it. It slides up. I have found a way inside, making me that much closer to finding stuff. I slither into the house as quietly as possible before closing the window. The room smells like sweat, cigarettes, and dirty laundry. I fight a cough and a gag before getting control of myself. I move up to the front of the room looking for anything that might be helpful. I don't see anything helpful, but I do notice these weird little red packets with a circled Japanese symbol on the dresser and one of those decorative plates you might have seen at your grandma's coffee table. There must have been 50 of those packets sitting there empty. They must have been some sort of new brand name drug, but I didn't recognize the Japanese symbol that they were using as their calling card. Whatever it was, it hit the streets after I lost my badge. I shake my head, trying to remember I wasn't a cop anymore and that I had more pressing business to attend to. Moving away from the dresser, I grab the bedroom door's knob and twist it as slowly and quietly as I can. Hearing the clicking sound of the latch clearing the frame, I pull it open slowly to get a better look at what was going on in the house at large. Peeking through the small opening between the door and the frame, I can see three white guys standing in what I'm guessing is the living room, focusing on someone or something behind the hallway wall that was blocking my view. I could hear what sounded like a father chiding a child in condescending tones. I opened the door a little more, hoping not to catch the attention of the guys in the living room, but they don't even flinch. They seem too wrapped up in what was going on in front of them. I move behind the door, so if one of them does look over here, all they'll see is an open door, and that's not nearly as conspicuous as seeing me staring out of it. I press my forehead against the door and strain my ears to hear what's going on in the other room. The words are a little muffled, but I can make out the syllables and piece together the words. Told that we were to make the soup kitchen into a franchise. Things didn't go as planned. We had to get out of there quick, says an obviously Caucasian voice. You mean to say that you were beaten up by a woman and ran off before someone else attacked you? Corrects a voice with an obvious Asian accent. There was quiet, and then the Caucasian voice defends itself. She caught us off guard. We panicked. It won't happen again. I see, says the Asian voice. So, you have a plan to go back and keep this woman from interfering in our business? We've seen to it, yes, the white guy answers with a little more confidence. There is a pause as the Asian man considers this. Good. Then let us get down to the business that had brought us here this evening, shall we? Of course, the white guy replies. I'll be frank with you, Mr. Stellingman. We are here because we have reports of you cutting our product to spread it out and make more money off of it. This bothers my employers for several reasons. None more serious than you are keeping money from us that is not rightfully yours. And they cannot run a profitable business if those who work for them disrespect them this way. Stellingman sputters as he shows his protest to what he's being accused of. That's a lie. I may be a lot of things, but stupid ain't one of them. Cheating your employers would get me and mine killed. I can't make money if I'm dead. Wow. Stellingman sounded much more intelligent than I had originally pegged him for. Maybe it was inexperience and not stupidity that had caused the mistakes that led me to him. We took a sample of our product from one of your employees. The Asian man made sure to emphasize the word your to make sure that Stellingman knew that his ass was on the hot seat. Our labs confirmed that it had indeed been cut to less than half of its original potency. My employers have a brand to protect, Mr. Stellingman. A reputation to uphold. Wait, wait. I'm telling the truth. I've not authorized any cutting of your product. If I had, I sure as hell wouldn't have rolled out the welcome wagon for a bunch of company hitmen if I had. Stellingman reasons. Good point. Perhaps that is true, or perhaps you knew that an attack on us would be proof of your guilt and bring retribution down on you much quicker than if you could fool us and have us leave without killing or exposing you, the Asian man retorts. Ah, touche. There's quiet. I can tell Stellingman is thinking, trying to come up with a way that brings him out of this situation alive. You said you bought product from one of my men, he asked. Yes, the Asian man answers. Do you remember who? Stellingman asks him. Of course, the Asian man answers with a slight amount of aggravation in his voice. Allow me to check into the matter and handle it, internally. It would show your employers that I'm loyal and I want to do business with them, Stellingman says. What makes you think that they would want to work with a man who cannot keep his own employees under control? The Asian man asks. I got the sinking feeling that Stellingman was a dead man no matter what deals he offered. I think he was starting to get that impression as well. What about a trade then? What if I can provide proof that I'm a capable employee? Would that buy me time to look into things to prove my loyalty to the company? Stellingman asks the Asian. What proof would you have to offer that could show that you are capable in your job? The Asian man asks. The girl, Stellingman says. My heart stops beating. She was here. The one from the box soup kitchen job, the Asian man asks. Yes, we took her to show that we weren't the types to be messed with, to make a statement. She's here, Stellingman tells him. The tension hung in the air like humidity in late July. It was all I could do to keep from tearing out of that room and making them all tell me where she was. I couldn't, though. I had to wait. I had to make sure it was her. Bring her to me, the Asian demands. Let me see her. I will decide if she is worth letting someone like you have a second chance. I hear the snap of fingers. Steve, go get her, Stellyman tells one of his guys. I hear the swish of moving clothes and the thud of feet as they walk away somewhere to go get Steph and bring her out here to be used as a bargaining chip for this worthless piece of shit's life. I fumble for the flask again, hands shaking. I needed strength, wherever it came from, and right now, alcohol was as good a source as any. I think you and your employers will like the girl. She's got spirit, Stelman tells the Asian. So I heard, replied the Asian. How is your head feeling? I laughed. I laughed to myself. It was just like Steph to take matters into her own hands when others couldn't or wouldn't. I'm not sure that girl had been afraid of one day in her life. Always knew exactly what had to be done, even if I didn't. That was one of the reasons I had to save her. I didn't know what to do anymore. There's a banging noise as a door I can't see slams into a wall. Then I hear the rustling sound of something heavy being dragged across the linoleum. I can also hear the erratic knocking and banging of something on the floor and decide it's time to see what's going on. Peeking through the door, I can see a woman in jeans and green t-shirt bound with clothesline and her mouth duct taped. Her highlighted blonde hair fell from her face in ragged ropes like moss from swamp trees and her body sagged from exhaustion. Everything about her looked like it was deaf, but I couldn't tell because her head was bowed, looking at the floor while she struggled to breathe through her nose. I knew it didn't matter if the girl was deaf or not. I knew I was going to have to save her. I just wanted to know first. I had to know. Damn it, raise your head! Steve deposited the woman unceremoniously on the carpet of the living room. She lay there and seemed to almost relish the softness that the carpet afforded her. Seeing that, my anger built and... I could feel my muscles tensing. I was going to tear these losers' limb from limb. Another thug comes into view from the front of the room. Presumably Stellingman. Reaches down and grabs the woman by the chin and hauls her face up, dragging the rest of her body with it, making her kneel in front of him. He laughs, just like all the douchebag bad guys do in the movies, and brushes the hair out of her face. It was the dumbest thing he'd ever do, and maybe even his last. With the hair gone... I can clearly see that it is Steph, and she has bruises on her face. I fling the door open hard, grab the pistol from his holster and put two bullets in Stellingman, one in his forearm and the other in his shoulder. His boys jump up off the couch, surprised by the noise, and I fire off three more shots, hitting each in their shoulders and dropping them to the floor. The hallway disappears into a blur of movement as I rush from the bedroom and into the living room. Once there, I kicked Stellingman, who was on his knees, clutching his arms, in the face, sending his body cussing and screaming onto the carpet. I take up a defensive position in front of Steph and train my pistol on the five Asians that filled the doorway and front part of the living room. I hadn't counted on there being so many since I'd only heard the one. They must have been pros, too, because they had their guns trained on me before I could articulate how many of them there were. Don't move, I tell them. I may not be able to take all of you before you kill me, but you don't know which one I'll shoot first or how many of you I'll get before I go down. Nobody banner in return. In the back of my mind, I was a little disappointed. For what seemed like a full minute, the only sounds I heard were Stellingman and his men moaning from the gunshots. Who are you? Asked the familiar Asian voice that I'd been listening to. It belonged to the man in the black suit and matching black tie. I suppose that made him the leader since the others were dressed in tan suits with red ties. A friend of the girl's, I said, nodding a Steph, who was now wide-eyed and staring right back at me. Black Suit muttered something that sounded vaguely Japanese. From what I had heard from the old dubbed Japanese flicks I had watched over the years, he looked away from me, viewed his guys, then Stellingman, and his thugs on the floor, as if he was doing some invisible math in his head. I didn't like that. It meant he didn't think I was in charge. I really needed to be in charge if I wanted to leave here with Steph unharmed. I reach down and grab Steph's elbow and pull her to her feet. She's shaky at first, but she manages to hold her body up, even though she has to lean on me to keep from falling down. The warmth of her skin against mine brings back all sorts of memories. My arms ached to wrap around her and to hold her close, to smell her hair, to relish in those secret sins only lovers get to enjoy. If only I wasn't holding a gun on four Asian mobsters at the moment. Well, five if you count Mr. blacksuit Suit, but he didn't have a gun. Finally, black suit turns back and looks at me. His eyes were serious and unafraid, kind of like the way a lioness looks at the gazelle. I didn't like it one bit, and my gut reminded me of the feeling I'd had in the backyard. I gritted my teeth against the fear, the obviously unfounded fear that this man was more dangerous without a gun than I was with one. Stellingman, it is my opinion that you are inept and are no longer useful to my employer. You are henceforth terminated, as are all of your employees, Black Suit says. Effective immediately, he says, raising three fingers and pointing them forward. The sound of flapping clothes followed by a gust of wind fills the room, almost knocking me and Steph to the floor. I bend my knees, close my eyes, and push myself forward, holding both of us up, if only barely. When I open my eyes, what I see seems unreal. There's blood everywhere, and the screaming, it's inhuman. The four tan-suited mobsters have their teeth buried in the necks of Stellingman and his men. After they take their fill, they scream into the air like animals. I swear when they scream, I see fangs. Fucking fangs. This can't be real. I clutch Steph next to me out of reflex to keep her safe. Even though at this point, I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to pull that off. As if on cue, Black Suit walks right up to me, right past my gun, and well up in my grill. You have picked a bad day to be a hero. He tells me, you have the courage and the will to be a warrior, but I'm afraid I cannot allow you to leave this place. I stand there stunned. Who was this little sawed off asshole to tell me he was going to kill me, even though he didn't want to? I decided Mr. Cocky would be better off with a window in his head, so I point the gun at him, but it never goes off. Instead, I feel heavy, like someone dropped a mountain on my shoulders. If I feel so heavy, why am I not falling? I look down to see Mr. Blacksuit's arm lodged elbow deep in my chest. What? What the? Is all I managed with a confused look on my face. It does not matter any more. Mr. Blacksuit says, pulling his arm from my chest, ripping my guts out with it, and tossing me back towards the feeding frenzy behind me. I'm so sleepy. I can't even hold my eyes open. It takes all the willpower I can muster to open them when they close, and I can feel the strength fading as well. I see Mr. Blacksuit grab Steph and then darkness. When I open them again, he and Steph are at the door, then more darkness. I force my eyes open one more time to see that they're gone, and I am wrapped with sadness. Darkness falls over me, and I can feel the distant tugging of something on my flesh. The last thing I remember was another animalistic scream. Then there's nothing. Calvin the Author's audiobooks is protected by a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 international license. Music on the podcast was provided by Alpha Brutal. You can find out more about the author on his website at calvintheauthor.wordpress.com, as well as find him on Facebook by searching Calvin the Author, or on Twitter, at Calvin the Author. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my work, and I look forward to sharing more of it with you next week.